Hi, everyone. Welcome to Trader Chats, unique perspectives from seasoned traders. I'm your host, Imran Laka, founder of Options Insight and 20-year professional options trader. As you might know, I became a trading mentor about three years ago, but I thought these conversations would be a great way for my students to gain valuable perspectives from some of the professional traders that I know and respect. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Trader Chats, everyone. Today, I'm joined by the legend that is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Darius? Are we talking finance? Are we talking sci-fi? Someday, (laughs) which legend? (laughs) Legend, past legend and future legend, Darius Dale, welcome. How are you? Imran, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. No, it's great. It's great. I'm really glad you could make it. And um, just uh, why don't you, before we start, why don't you just tell us a bit about your background in markets and where you learned your skills? Yeah, no. Uh, so the, 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 the background in markets comes from, I guess, I spent uh, the first uh, 12 years of my career at, at Hedgeye. I'm sure most of you guys watching are familiar with Hedgeye for many different reasons. Um, you know, so I, I was I last was uh, my last role there was the sector head of macro. I was there about that, in that role for about four or five years. Um, most people know me. I sort of cut my teeth and earned my name in finance and global Wall Street uh, for designing what they call the quads. Um, that's their four quadrant regime segmentation process that they use to guide their asset allocation decision making. So that's my baby. That's you know sort of what I built uh, while I was there and kind of really maintained and ultimately <laughs> used it to uh, to catapult myself into some some notoriety. Knock on wood. I will see if it uh, continues. <laughs> but in terms of uh, you had a two part question. You said where did I learn my skills? So um, you know as you can probably see, I went to Yale, but I certainly didn't study uh, finance. Yeah, I took my fair share of uh, quant classes, but. You know, it, it was not something that interested me, quite frankly. Uh, I was very much on the path to, 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 to doing the law and the government sort of thing a lot of folks do at that, at that institution. And, you know, it kind of came clear to me that after a few years that, look, man, I don't think I want to keep going to school. You know, like by the time I was a junior, I was like, I think I'm over school. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I want to start applying to law school. So I was like, I mean, I got to make a career pivot so I can go, you know, work somewhere, uh, you, know, be, you know, without having to go to school after college. And obviously, you know, finance was the thing, but this is back in, this is only 08. And so you know, like, I'm looking for internships and finance and I'm like, ah, oh, this isn't working. You know, like I'm hitting up all these uh, former Yale studs on Wall Street and everything, you know, because that's kind of what you do. You go to a place like Yale, Harvard, and you, you, you send an email to an alumni, play your sport, and they give you a job. That's typically what happened. That stopped in 2008 and it really hasn't picked back up since. Right. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, kind of the reason I found I wound up at Hedgeye, uh, Keith, uh, the firm, the CEO of Hedgeye, Keith McCullough, he puts out this full page ad in the heart of the financial crisis. This must be like right after Lehman went bankrupt. Hey, we're hiring, you know? And so, uh, you know, I kind of replied to the ad and kind of the rest is history. <laughs> like, like we're the only people who are hiring right in the middle. We're the, of the only crisis. people in this right. industry hiring right now. Right, so, right. Okay. Fortunate enough to, to take advantage of that. Nice, nice. All right. And, you, you know, your specialism is what we'll call quant-driven macro, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. And and, you know, I guess the first question I would ask you then is why quant driven macro as opposed to the old school way of, of that's worked well for the likes of Paul Tudor Jones and Soros, like those old school guys who, who you know, 
run macro positions for long periods of time. They 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 just call a they have a position, then they ride it to the death. Like, what is it about your style, your quant driven that that makes you that pushes you in that direction? And what makes you think that's the right way to do it as opposed to the other stuff? So I'll start by saying there's a million ways to skin the cat. I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to invest. I think the only wrong way to invest is to not learn from your mistakes is to keep making mm-hmm. the same mistakes over. And that's pretty much, that's a, that's a truism for life as well, right? <laughs> There's no one right way to live life, but there's certainly a wrong way and it's to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to quant-driven macro and why I was let down that path rather than your traditional discretionary macro, because I dabbled in discretionary macro earlier in my career, you know, trying to use things like weather to predict ag prices and things like that. And, and quite mm-hmm. frankly, you know, until I really stumbled upon uh, Ray Dalio's work with the, the all-weather system at Bridgewater, you know, I didn't really have a good mental framework for thinking about, for put, you know, for, for, for you know, just diagramming and disclosing and, and, and more importantly, uh, segmenting risk and understanding how risk behaves. And quite frankly, with respect to your legacy discretionary macro, and there's still some funds that do a really good job at that. Um, but for the most part, that's been a dying industry in terms of the returns, in terms of the assets under management. And the reason for that, in my opinion, and again, this is my humble opinion, I think this market structure has changed to that it's no longer favorable to take those kinds of bets on a consistent basis, to make those kinds of bets. The level of sophistication of market participants that are not specifically macro driven is much higher than it used to be. Like you can hop on FinTwit and really get the rundown on all the main macro narratives and drivers at any given time. I'm not saying you're gonna be forecasting going forward, but you can Mm -hmm. certainly get up to speed really easily. Um, you know, with very, you know, with, with free resources and those investors back in the day in the eighties and the nineties and the seventies, and even up to the early two thousands, you know, they had a real stranglehold on, you know, that information, you know, they could talk, they could call the bank of England, they could call, um, you know, the, or not the people's bank of China, but they could call, they had people, you know, working in the fed, you know, the New York fed and things of that nature. And there was just a lot more information arbitrage to right. take advantage of back then. And there just isn't anymore. And so so the, the, the dislocation in the macro asset would be so much bigger and you could get on that trade, whereas exactly. now you blink and you miss it because the machines they, they are They hardly over. show up. They hardly mm. show up. And, and mm. the reason they hardly show up is because markets, macro markets have become significantly more efficient with the advent of new players into the system, primarily through the advent of ETF, the ETF yeah. machine. It's a machine. I mean, you go back to 20 years ago, you know, right around when you first started in the industry, you couldn't just walk, wake up and get exposure to triple C credit. You know, yeah. that was like a big deal if you could find a fund that could get you into that kind of asset class. And obviously there's significantly more esoteric asset classes within fixed income and within structured products, things like that. You can replicate a lot of these same returns using ETFs now and using, and using uh, different funds now. And so the, re- you know, the reality is there's just a lot more people involved. And there's yeah. a lot more smart people involved. And I think that's why uh, I believe quant macro has been, I would say it's the future, but I would argue it's been the future since, you know, kind of the early days of my career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, makes sense. And um, so your process, the way I would kind of summarize it, because I'm a big fan, I'm also a subscriber to your, to your, um, to 42 macro. Thank you, sir. So I see it as a, you say it's a combination of a macro regime now casting process mm-hmm. and a market regime price signaling process. Yeah. And when you combine those two, that's what makes it so powerful, basically, right? So yeah. could you talk a little bit to that and how that works and why you think that's the case? Yeah, so you, you, I think you, you, of all the interviews I've done thus, uh, thus far, you've, you've summarized that best. 
And what and what you mean by that is, is we, we have sort of two separate processes running simultaneously at all times. And the intersection of those processes is, is what creates our asset allocation recommendations, our portfolio construction recommendations. And so on one side of the ledger, you have what we call all our top-down market regime outcasting process. That's you know done through the lens of what we call our volatility adjusted momentum signaling process, whereby we're getting information from the four, the 42 most liquid. You know, heavily trafficked in markets across the world as leading indicators for you know one not only future market activity, market dispersion within and across second markets, but also leading indicators for what's likely to happen uh, in the economy. So that, if you can sort of think about this in simplistic terms, that process is is the weather. You know, what is the weather? But obviously, if you're going on a road trip, within a road, I would argue investing is very much akin to to going on a road trip. You obviously need a map. You need a roadmap. You're not just going to get in your car and start driving and hope to wind up where you you know you want to go um, in any reasonable amount of time without you know having a map. So what we call our bottom-up macro regime forecasting uh, process, that's what we're doing. We're trying to use economic information, high-frequency and low-frequency economic data, to project to measure and map the the likely path of growth and inflation in the economy. Because what we know, what we found through careful backtesting, you know, I spent most of my career you know, constructing and comprising these types of models and back tests. What we know is that policymakers react to certain functions in the economy, you know, big deviations in growth to the upside or downside, big deviations in inflation to the upside or downside, you know, big deviations in financial markets, you know, to the upside or downside. And so what we're trying to do is use our ability to forecast what's happening in the economy to ultimately anticipate how the weather might change. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is get into a car and not just say, hey, I have a, a, a map to get me to X, Y, Z. Well, if it's snowing and it's a blizzard outside, you might want to put on snow tires. You might want to actually, you know, leave tomorrow. You know, you know, like that's what this process is doing. The, the top-down market regime process is doing. And the bottom-up macro regime process is saying, okay, what direction do I want to drive the car? And that to me- I, I like the analogy. I like, really like the analogy of the weather and then yeah. the map, right? And yeah. you, you need a combination of both safely get you there basically to safely get you there exactly yeah. you can get there with one or the other i mean maybe not, not the weather. you can you can get to where you're going without both mm. but it's 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 more dangerous you're gonna as an investor you're gonna incur mm. more volatility in your portfolio interesting interesting and um the idea i guess so the back testing that you do um well actually there's two things i wanted to ask so so i notice a lot of the time you're analyzing the rate of change data on growth and inflation to figure yeah. out what grid you're in okay yeah, that's it. but often i see you trying to almost second guess which grid we're going into you're like right now it says we're in grid inflation but i reckon we're going to reflation and and that's almost like you bringing in your own discretionary style because you're so used to seeing this data jump around and move around that you're you're analyzing the quant numbers so this is what it is actually telling me but based on my experience and my kind of feel for this mm-hmm. i see us heading here basically is that fair to say that is extremely fair to say i say this all the time it's not enough anymore to be just quant or just fundamental yeah. Like fundamental would just be me, you know, not looking at my finger, but just based on my experience and my feel saying, I think X, Y, Z is going to happen. Therefore, I'm going to position mm-hmm. for X, Y, Z. Purely quantitative is saying the model says X, Y, Z is going to happen. I'm only going to do X, Y, Z because the model said so. And until the models change, I'm not allowed to change. Exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah. what quantumental is, is the intersection of those two processes, whereby you say, I'm going to empower my decision making with the quant because mm. that over time will give me the best opportunity 
to be to you know to, to, to demonstrate superior and consistent results. Mm-hmm. However, at, you need to have a human being in the system, right? Yeah. Because any model, I mean, anyone who's built a model, the first thing you realize is that they're always backward looking in terms of how you train them. You can't train yeah. the model with forward looking data, but yeah. as an investor, we have to invest, you know, based on our expectations of the future. And so the model can sort of you know, what models do, at least how we employ models at 42 Macro, is they narrow the range of probable outcomes. You know, there's mm-hmm. all, all these things could happen in the, over the future. And obviously the, the, the distribution gets wider as you get away from, you know, uh, T, T0. As you get further out in time, the distribution widens. And what you're trying to use models for is to actually compress that, that range of outcomes so that you can make informed investment decisions on a consistent basis. Yeah, I, the way I'd say it is it keeps you honest. Right, you might have a view that reflation's coming, right? And you've nailed it, by the way, recently. Um, so you, but let's say the data just kept telling you that actually it's not happening, right? Let's just say, and I'm going to ask you a bit later about that because I've got some questions on that. But basically, it keeps you honest, so you don't be stubborn to your view. If the if the data is telling you something that's different to your view for long enough, you just got to accept it, be a big boy, oh. and move on, right? So, and I oh. think that helps, you know. Oh, I mean, and this is, you know, I, it's so, you know, I, most people are kind of in, interacting with me as a, as a person now at, at the highest frequency they've ever done. But for, you know, many, many years, that was just sort of like, you know, behind the curtain at Hedgeye, you know, yeah. only talking to institutional clients for a long period of time. And so, you know, you kind of brought up a, a, something that always resonated with me, which is the goal of this whole exercise is to make money. And like when I'm talking to a, a hedge fund portfolio manager or a, a, a mutual fund CIO or the head of a family office, office, I can't be like, oh, talking about something that's going to come to fruition over some long extended period of time. These people have performance figures they need to hit. Quite frankly, they have career risk associated with not hitting those performance figures. And so mm-hmm. I've always taken it upon myself to be very, very, uh, to take that, that, that burden of being part of their team or being part of their um, investment process very seriously, because mm-hmm. there are real implications for, for, for capital misallocation on the buy side. And, and that's sort of where, that's part of where this process has come from. It's it's using the data to make sure you keep yourself honest and not too far out in the future with some sort of Pollyannish or you know, ultimately extremely bearish views. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so back to the back testing side. So I noticed, you know, you back test all of your assets to those different regimes that you think we might be in. Yep. And then do you just sort of say, okay, well, I've back tested it. So in that regime, it goes up or it goes down. Or do you try to explain why in Goldilocks? We tend to get these outperformers, these underperformers. That makes sense from a sort of, you know, um, it just makes sense from a qualitative point of view, right? The quantitative is telling me it's there, but qualitatively it also lines up with what you should expect in Goldilocks or what you should expect in inflation and stuff like that. Yeah, so so I'm, I'm grateful that this is how, that Dalio and others have figured out that this is how the markets actually work because mm-hmm. the reality is, very few and far between do I see, a, do I observe anything in our back test that doesn't make fundamental sense, right? Like you talk about Goldilocks, so what does Goldilocks mean? That means growth is trending higher and inflation is trending lower. That typically is, you know, very positive for risk assets. You typically have reasonable returns in, in fixed income markets. You know, you're, you're going to be hard pressed to find an asset that does not do well in Goldilocks, um, with, with the dollar being a, a noteworthy exception, dollar yen. Swiss frank, those types of um, you know risk off currencies, mm-hmm. and so that's a that makes fundamental sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, if I say the word Goldilocks, I think most people understand what that means generally. Now we understand what that means a lot more than generally. We back tested everything that ticks. 
through the lens of those grids, Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, and deflation, you know, through the all, you know, through the quantitative prism of you know, annualized expected returns, percent positive ratios, volatility, covariance, you know, percent or percentile, you know, all those things, you know, it, you name it. We if if there's a, a descriptive statistic, we've applied it through the lens of that, through the lens of our grid regime how, process. How far back? How, how far back do you go to test that? We can go back as far as we want, but right now the back tests are currently set up for the trailing 25-year period. Because I do okay. I do not necessarily believe we've exited the, the policy regime that we've been in. Um, and it's really not the 2025 year period. I, I do believe that um, most importantly, the Q1 of 19 or, or January 98 is, is probably the most relevant data set to, to train any sort of back testing asset allocation model on for the current juncture until we've proven we've exited from this regime. And what I mean by that is, you know, we went from, you know, asset markets being the primary concern about asset markets for a long period of time was uh, inflation. And with the advent of LTCM, and more importantly, the market response to the Russian default, the mark and the Fed's response to the LTCM bailout, the mm -hmm. primary mar the market fear switched over to deflation, and it really has been deflation since that time period. Now you could argue, and we can have a great healthy debate about whether or not we transition back to the primary market fear being inflation. But until we've proven that otherwise, I still think this 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 um you know this kind of trailing twenty five year twenty three year window is the most appropriate window. Training mm -hmm. model on, and that's very much a fundamental argument you're using that's there. A fundamental right? argument, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But then, would you have you done the work to check on shorter time frequencies whether the back test actually tells the same thing? So, have you looked at over the last twenty five years? I've looked at the the five year periods going back. So those five five year periods, and then am I seeing that it's telling me the same information? Oh, it's 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 spooky. It does this for like multiple decades. I mean, like the 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 you look at the chart of the S and P or the ten year Treasury or back test, and you look at it for nineteen sixty or two thousand or the two thousands decade, and it looks exactly the same. Wow. It's 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 shocking how much markets trade off the rate of change of growth and inflation, not the level of growth and inflation, because obviously we've, we've traded mm. lower in both uh, for the yeah. past you know several decades. But the reality is markets function on the, the direction of travel of those statistics. And, you know, again, people with much bigger, <laughs> much more money and, and, and intelligence than I, I ever will amass, you know, have proven this, you know, obviously Bridgewater is the largest and most successful hedge fund of all time, or, or was at least at one point in time. Um, you know, there's obviously plenty of other hedge funds who employ similar strategies that I'm, I'm aware of, certainly that I've done work with over the years. Interesting. Okay, that's, that is really fascinating. Um, okay, so something you do a lot as well is um, volatility and crowding analysis, right? And the way I see that is you use that as your timing tools, basically, right? So, you know, you look at implied realized spreads in vol. Um, and I've got a question for you. So you often um, look at that spread and see if you're trading a premium to realize or a discount to realize, right? To get a feel for whether... The market has bought bought a bit too much protection is very yeah. well hedged so we might get a squeeze or the opposite yeah. the market's complacent vol's getting smashed actually buy some hedges here basically right that's kind of what you're always talking that's about exactly. when you talk about that now have you thought about the fact that sometimes when the market rallies off a bottom and it, and it rallies quite quickly it's realizing quite a lot right on the way up mm -hmm. and as you're riding up the skew and implied vol's collapsing really quickly that kind of overshoots, right? And yeah. it's not necessarily that you found loads of sellers of vol that have just crushed the vol and there's complacency there. 
It's just that the rally was so fast and you've ridden up what was quite a steep skew that I feel like maybe that signals telling you that the market's complacent when it isn't necessarily. Right, yeah, no, agreed, agreed. And this is why we look at the volatility, the risk premium analysis that we do um, in, in, in quadrants as well. And so if you think about the, the, the upper right quadrant, that's where uh, on the x-axis we have the, the standard deviation of realized volatility. Um, and so you know, on the left side of that, 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 that chart, you have a, you know, a negative standard deviation of realized volatility, which means realized vol is low. If you're coming off of a market event, you know, particularly one that was meaningful enough to, to catalyze a V-bottom, then you're probably going to be on the right side of the chart. You've had high realized volatility. And mm -hmm. that's, that's more indicative. A high realized volatility regime, um, I'm, not, I'm not telling you, I'm just explaining this to the viewer. High realized volatility regime it, with an implied volatility discount is a market saying, okay, the coast is clear. The worst is behind us. And, and the market, and don't, don't get me wrong, like, I think let's take a step back from this type of analysis and, and actually just talk. We spend too much time as investors trying to fake consensus and not nearly enough time as investors understanding why the consensus exists you know yeah. like when you see something going to the bottom right quadrant of that chart which is again in high realized volatility implied volatility discount it's usually because we just had a correction and the correction is probably over now you instead of saying no go fade that now you should say okay why does the market think the correction is over is this fundamental and mm. if it's fundamental what's the duration with which this this this, this recovery can take place so that that fading kind of um, bias that people have People just like to be, into, they feel like they're clever, right? They're cleverer than everyone else. Everyone else is wrong. Clearly, totally. I should fade that and then I'll be a hero when I'm right, basically. Totally. Right? So it's hubris. Yeah. And, and look, there's nothing wrong with it in isolation. It's just there's a problem with it. In, 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 you have to do it in moderation. When you, the second you start thinking you can just fade every market move and you're smarter than all the other brilliant people investing tons of capital in global financial markets, that's when you're going to start to have problems, in my right, opinion. For sure. So, for, sure. it, uh, for those of you listening out there, obviously there's you know, plenty of strategies that are designed to take advantage of fading and swing trading, all this stuff. But don't assume that you sitting at home with your keyboard, or even if you have a Bloomberg, that you're just going to figure out global financial markets because you're not. Just you know, yeah, we, we've been, I've been trying for 20 years and I'm still haven't figured it out. So don't and, worry. And, and 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 you won't. And neither will no. I. No. All we're trying to do is helping help ourselves, our own families, but also help the families of other people. Hmm limit the amount of mistakes they make because we're all going to continuously make mistakes until we stop doing this. this totally thing. right. Totally sorry. right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I take it back. This is the hardest thing to do in the world that doesn't involve the loss of human life, <laughs> which is investing. Yeah, I mean, I tell all my guys, all my subscribers, my students, whoever it is, and say, I've been doing this for 20 years and the market schools me constantly. constantly. Always getting schooled by the market, right? It's just the way it is. And you have to accept that that's the nature of trading. That's the nature yeah. of doing this, right? And, 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 and keep yourself one of these. I, you know what I mean? Notes I take of stuff that I got wrong. It's not because I, I'm ever going to go back and read it. I, I, never, I don't have time to go back and read it. It's the process of writing it down that mm -hmm. causes me to remember this. Okay, what was my yeah. thought process when I put this train on? Mm -hmm. What was my thought process when I, you know, had, you know, like you mentioned, I had a fundamental view that we now cast ourselves in inflation. What was my thought process back then? If we don't get that, you know, I, I got to go remember, okay, what, what made, what led me down that path so I can avoid making that same mistake uh, again. And so I think that's one thing that the pros do really well. And I don't know that the non-pros do really well, but for all you non-pros out there that want to have the same results as the pros, you definitely want to start uh, taking good notes. Mm-hmm. And um, another signal, vol, seeing as I'm a vol guy, I thought I'd quiz you a bit on the vol stuff you do, right? Yeah, so the, um, the VIX 
the VVIX VIX signal that you look at. You look into yeah. your VAM and your VAMs thing, as I understand it, volatility adjusted momentum signal. So you're basically saying, is price above a certain moving average to give me price momentum? And then is the vol, the realized vol, is that below the average of the realized vol? To, is that for the momentum of the vol? How does that you, work? Uh, almost. You were correct on the price side, on the volatility side. So what we found, and obviously, you know, I'm not the first person to you know, read Benoit Mandelbrot, uh, you know, book. I've probably read that book four or five times now. But, you know, what you find is that when you, when you transition to one side of a volatility distribution, you typically have higher price changes. And so what that model is designed to do is spot the median of volatility on that same, you know, medium term uh, duration to figure out, okay, if we cross over to here, we're probably going to have bigger price changes. And typically in financial markets, bigger price changes are, 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 are uh, associated with that declines, um, with the yeah. exception of things like cryptocurrency, uh, interest rates, um, spreads, those types of things have bigger price changes on the upside, typically. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, so that the model is uh, smart enough to adjust for those kinds of uh, variables. But what it's really designed to do is say, hey, we if you're bullish, but we're on the wrong side of the volatility distribution, you need to be aware of that. Because this, this is oftentimes heading into a downturn decline in markets. That is the first warning shot. Volatility is the leading indicator for the price breakdown. Um, and so that's why we uh, use, that's why we you know, anchor on volatility. As, as so that, that volatility level, that volatility threshold, is that just a fixed number or is that moving? No, no, it's a trailing number associated with, with whatever regime we're looking at or whatever okay. time uh, price series we're looking at. For, so for most equities, we're looking at something between 100, 150 days. For most currencies, things that are lower vol, we're looking at something between 150 and 200 days. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And it's and it's all realized vol you're looking at, not in No, no. So it's it's whatever backtest best. Um, okay. Realized vol backtest best for most things equity, um, but things obviously if you have a, a liquid a liquid uh, implied volatility index, then that typically works really well. Um, you know, for example, obviously like the VIX or the VXN for the Nasdaq, something like the you know VX XLV or you know the the the, the silver volatility index or the or the um, you know what's the, the FXI the China volatility index those things aren't liquid enough so they they don't they don't provide great signals um, mm -hmm. so we look at we could potentially look at a stock implied volatility index like that we could look at uh, ten day realized volatility or oftentimes not oftentimes but there are times where we actually look at another market indicator as the volatility adjustment for example in most of our volatility adjusted momentum signals for commodities mm -hmm. the dollar the Bloomberg dollar index is a better back test than the, those commodities own volatility indices or their own volatilities. And, so that, and therefore you use that as opposed to- I use the dollar. So when the dollar is breaking out, most commodities right now in our model, um, with the exception of most uh, energy commodities because they have their own implied volatility in, uh, indices. Most commodities, our models have been bullish uh, or not bullish, neutral for a while because we've seen a bullish you know, uh, VAMS break out in the dollar for the past couple of months. Mm -hmm. And so you know that, that's a warning signal to us to say, hey, look, the coast is not clear with respect to levering up and taking the maximum amount of risk you take in this asset class, because mm -hmm. you don't have this, this very uh, favorable outcome that is dollar debasement, you know, a weakening dollar. And we've seen it, you know, in Q4, we've seen a lot of commodity price appreciation, but we've also seen some pretty massive drawdowns. You look at yeah. gas, medium, copper, all these commodities have gone up a lot, but they've also had some major drawdowns as well. And that's because the volatility adjustment is telling you that should occur. You, know, you can still have a big move up from those lows, but you know that that that's yeah, yeah. That's definitely something that's been making me nervous on the on commodity longs. Um, yeah, totally. I'm certainly yeah. same here. Yeah, um, and then yeah, that VIX versus VVIX breakdown. So the the way I read that and will think about that is 
if you're seeing that thing breaking down, you see that as a negative general risk-off type dynamic, right? Indeed. And that's because the VIX is spiking more than its volatility, right? Yes. And the, the way I would kind of explain that is that people have got more conviction in just buying VIX futures um, and they're happy to hedge their books in VIX futures rather than buying calls on the VIX, which is a vol play. And that would yeah. make the vol be more bid than the futures themselves. So a low conviction hedge might be calls on the VIX just in case. But yeah. if I'm like really worried about the market, I'm just going to buy VIX futures. That's, right? you, 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 you hit that. I couldn't explain that better myself. That's exactly uh, how I think about it. It's, it's, there's a, the breakdown in the VVIX VIX ratio, or really the, you know, the flip of that is the breakout in the VIX relative to its own volatility mm. is a rush for near term protection. I think the market is going down now. VIX calls aren't going to get it done for me. I need, I need real mm. downside protection. And that's typically what you see in okay. big market events. You know, you don't, you don't normally see that um, in just general market corrections, but you typically see that if the market's about to go down 10 plus percent. You're, 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 almost always going to see that that breakdown. Yeah, that's interesting. Because often what you see when VIX is low, VVIX is quite high because people exactly. are like, if I just buy a load of VIX, I'm probably going to lose money. But exactly. I'll lose less money if I buy out of the money calls on VIX and I'll still own the crash if it happens, basically. Except, right? that's, I think that's exactly yeah. it. It's, it's, the, it's the realization. It's, it's the, you're going from uh, generally hedging because you know, you're in the business of being long risk to Oh shit! I need to hedge now because I want to stay in the business of being long risk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that. It's that. It's that. That shift. Interesting. Okay, good. Yeah, and um, and then the last thing about vol that I wanted to kind of talk about was: Do you look at skew? Do you look moves in skew at all? So I, I often find that skew, particularly short dated skew, and if it moves a lot, is a, often a bit of a leading indicator to markets. I've seen that a lot in Bitcoin recently because uh, oh, I look at. Well, yeah, uh, but is that something you keep an eye on, like what SKU's doing and how, like in FX, it happens a lot, right? For example, when you've got a Brexit on the horizon or you've got some political turmoil happening in the country, the SKU starts to shift mm -hmm. and the retail risk starts to change. And that often gives you a bit of a lead indicator that that asset might go through a period of weakness because of this political uh, thing that's going on under the surface. Yeah, no, I, I, I not as religiously as I, I look at the volatility risk premium. Um, because that's in terms of what we're trying to do with that, that signal, um, which is really isolate, you know, tactical near-term trading opportunities. SKU to me, I think is more of a, a medium-term signal in terms of changing the direction of the, the medium-term price uh, of, of the price momentum. And so, um, you know, we, we think we have a, a decent enough model to do that already. But no, I, I do believe SKU is a very important indicator. It would be, I, behind volatility risk premium, Skew would be number two for me, a very close 1A, 1B type situation. I just don't have time to look at everything. Okay, excellent. Cool. And um, and then just sort of wrap up, like, do you see this framework that you've developed at 42 Macro, do you see it evolving? How do you think you could do it an even better job? And I think you're doing a great job already, but how do you think how do you think the model can be improved? What Are there any things that you're working on to try and sort of mix it up a bit? Yeah, and I mean, so like you, you just uh, brought up a great uh, uh, discussion on skew. I'm already, you, you sort of, you're front running the front runner, but I'm already built, trying to build a model on SKU that's predictive and, and, and well back tested before I obviously launch and introduce it to, to, to clients and customers. But, but yeah, so, I mean, we're always, I mean, the reality is, is when you, when you develop a, a quantitative process or, or if you're a model builder or any, in really not just in finance, but in any industry, you're never done. You know, you, you, there's no, I've never, you know, if software, software developers understand this better than anybody. Like you could push out the best piece of code in the world and you're going to be working on it for the rest of your life. 
you know, <laughs> you know, and that's just, that's part of the, that's part of the gig. And so to answer your question, yeah, we're always trying to find different parameters, different data sets that are more predictive than the ones we are currently have access to or the ones we currently know about, um, you know, obviously, yeah, no, the, the reality is we're, we're always learning and training the models that, that the answer that that'll never change. Okay. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm excited to see what, what you come up with next. Um, yeah. And then lastly, I can't, I can't let, I can't let you go without talking a little bit about the current market. Right. So, yeah, so you know, you've been calling for a bounce in growth. Um, you're saying that you think growth bottomed out in September uh, yeah. post Delta variant bounce. We're starting to see, Certainly prices reflect that a little bit uh, on the little mini reflation trade. You look at some of the airlines, you look at the Russell 2000, high beta, shorted names, they're all squeezing. But if you look at the dollar and you look at long dated treasuries and you look at commodities outside of energy, they're starting to set, they're maybe saying we're not quite in reflation. Maybe there's still a bit of stagflation, deflation under the hood that you need to be worried about. Mm-hmm. How would you explain that divergence across the different asset classes? Like equities is game on, clearly. Yes. What do you think? Yeah, so I'll start by saying that on any given day, not every asset class has to agree with the grid regime. Mm. The whole pur- the purpose of the top-down market regime now casting process is to say on a trending basis, this is how markets are generally behaving. You know, like even like, it, you know, if you have a three-month window, and it's been all reflation as the dominant market regime within that. That doesn't mean every single trading day in that three-month window is traded like inflation. You could have had you know, a number of deflation days, a number of Goldilocks days. And what we're trying to do is identify the dominant market regime because that gives us the highest probability chance of making sure that our risk management is oriented with what the market is giving us. You know, I, I always say, you know, I, I play football and we have a saying in football, which is take what the defense is giving you. You know, don't if they put, you know, all 11 guys right in the middle, right in the box and, and standing next to the line of scrimmage, you probably don't want to run it right up the gut. You might want to throw it out to the to the, you know, to the flat. And so this is kind of how I think about investing as well. It's, you know, when you're in reflation, go, go do as the reflationists do. You know, when you're in deflation, do as the deflationists do. And so uh, kind of to answer your getting back to your question, it's like the distribution of probable economic outcomes we knew was going to be flat heading in the Q4. Like just in terms of how our, our, our conditional probability math works on the now cast and on the forecast, we knew that, hey, look, I expect the data to bounce in Q4, you know, just based on coming out of Delta. We've seen this pattern several times now. So me as a human or, you know, training my, myself to react to that. But even if it does bounce, there's still enough of a, of a chance, you know, it's quantitatively speaking, that it, it, it doesn't bounce enough. You know, like, like, you know, even just the, the impulse of coming out of Delta might not get you a sustained bounce in economic activity because you're talking about base effects. You're talking about other dynamics like labor cost pressures, you know, starting to eat in the margins, things like that. And so we're, we're, we're picking up all that information in our outcast. And so, you know, to answer your question on the dollar on treasuries, I don't know that we're, we were ever going to ever truly be fully out of the woods with respect to every asset market pricing in obvious reflation. And you've, you've heard me make this joke uh, several times, but I said, look, the reflation, and so I said this back in, in late September, the reflation trade we're about to get in Q4 is not going to be like the reflation trade we got in, from November to June. You know, that was the Jackson 5. We have the Hanson brothers over here. You know, mm-hmm. you know the, 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 one made a lot of hits, one made a hit. And, you know, it's, you're going to accept the hit from the Hanson brothers, no, no question, but it's just not going to be the same. You don't have the same dynamics in, mm-hmm. in from November of, of, of 2020 through June of 2021, you had five things happening 
that almost never happened at the same time. I went back and looked at this, this back last year when I was doing the work on it. And since 1960, there's only been 10 quarters where growth was accelerating, inflation was accelerating, corporate profit growth was accelerating, the Fed was easing, and, and fiscal policy was easing at the same time. 10 quarters in, in 60, in, yeah, 60 years, 60 plus years. And so we had like multiple of those quarters in, in, in the first half of this year coming out of November. And so that was obviously very historic inflation trade. Not, you know, Knockwood did an outstanding job calling that as well. And I think I did a decent enough job calling this one as well, but this one's just not like that. My sense is that um, it's almost like FX, the marginal participants in FX and bonds have, have got a longer term, I might be completely wrong here, but this is my sense, right? So they've got a longer term time horizon in their investing, right? So they're looking much further down the line. And as we've been saying, there's a lot of headwinds coming right in Q2 next year. So oh, that you could argue dollar and bonds are reflecting that already. Whereas you look at equities, who's the marginal participant in equities, right? It's like retail yeah. buyers, it's systematic CTAs, it's corporate yeah. buyback um, programs. They're the guys that are driving equity. And we have got the seasonal um, Santa rally that we kind of always get, right? Probability wise, it's quite high. So it feels like equities trades on a really short time horizon. The other assets trade on a longer time horizon. And that's the divergence we're seeing maybe, you know? Well, it, it, you, you hit the nail on the head as well, don't you, in terms of talking about the different players. Mm. The breakdown in, in like six month and one year and two year realized volatility that we're observing right now is catalyzing more people to, to jump into the kiddie pool. That is the equity market. You're mm. going to see more CTAs uh, increase the leverage. You're going to see more quant funds increase their, their exposure to, to U.S. equities as an asset class because we're getting the appropriate volatility signals to, 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 mm. to, to suggest that. You know, once you lose the September and October corrections from last year out of the sample, all you're left with is you're left with a massive decline in realized volatility on a, on a trailing one-year look back. And that's a big signal for a lot of big funds that I, I'm sure you're well aware of as well. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, because, you know, Raul always called bonds the market of truth or whatever, right? And, I, you know, I kind of think he's right. And, you, you know, even you earlier this year were thinking the deflation comes yeah. in December timeframe and you rolled that to Q2 next year. So it's yeah. kind of, we know it's coming. We know it's in our future, but you've just got to kind of navigate how we get there and when it comes, basically. And I think you do a good job of kind of changing your mind on that and like realizing that it's not coming yet. I'm not going to force yeah. it. If it doesn't want to come yet, I'm not going to force it. I'm going to take what the market gives me. And then I know that's probably in our future at some point. So I will do what I need to do to prep for that and kind of look out for that, basically. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the alternative would be uh, getting dressed in a home with no windows and just walking outside every day. Like with no, with no weather app on your phone, no windows, no internet, you just put clothes on and walked outside. Some days you're going to be lucky. You know, and I, what I mean by this is the style of investor who doesn't use data and quantitative tools to help them adjust their, their, their Bayesian prior into a, a Bayesian posterior that is more appropriate for making money in financial markets. Mm -hmm. A lot of people never adjust their Bayesian prior. They just maintain the same Bayesian prior, no matter how much data hits them in the head or in the chest every day. And to me, that's that's unacceptable. I think there's a there's a better solution. I'm not saying I have the world figured out, but I, I do believe that we are equities leading in that regard. Equities are notorious, though, for ignoring what's coming. Right. I mean, I was doing this in 2007 and 2008. Right. And the credit market blew up in 2007. Like the, the stress we saw in the credit market in 07 was a precursor to 08, right? And all of us were there who had our friends in credit saying this, the world is ending. We we're like, 
Well, not in equities, it's not, right? And equities was just up there for a good six to nine months until it had its wake-up call, right? Yeah, so- I mean, I, I, would, I, I would argue that from the perspective of how I think about investing, which is dispersion, both within and across asset classes, yeah. equities did get the call in the summer of 2007. The market internally got very, very bearish mm. in terms of the leadership within the market, with the exception of energy, because obviously we, we saw $150 crude oil in, in July of 08. But generally speaking, equities got the memo. It's just that the broader asset class didn't necessarily have that nasty decline until yeah, we yeah. obviously got into Q3 of, of, of 08. But you know, it peaked in, 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 in was it October 9th of 07? And the market was the market, the market was smart in that regard in terms of both peaking early and having the the the, 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 the defensive dispersion that you would expect. It just didn't necessarily blow up to the extent that I think in you know people who were closer to the credit situation wanted it to or needed it to. At that mm-hmm. moment in time, and, and quite frankly, thank God, you know, if, if Keith didn't get fired for shorting stocks too early from Magnetar or from what was he at uh, Carlisle, <laughs> there was no hedge eye in 08, right? And there's yeah. no Darius Dell talking to you today. So you know, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, it's been amazing. It's been really yeah, good man. to meet you, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Hopefully, um, the listeners found this informative. I'm sure they did, uh, but it's been a pleasure. Man, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for all your guidance, your tutoring, man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna feature you on one of our shows so you can teach me about options, man, because I'm still a novice in that regard. I, I use volatility as a leading indicator, but you know, I, I do want to start to enhance my own returns in a in a way that uh, I need to, <laughs> I need to do a better job of that because most of my money I spend on options goes into the the, the, the graveyard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as mo- as by the way, that cracked, all of you know that. That, that cracked <laughs> me up. So true? That comment you made about short-term options being the graveyard of capital. It's the graveyard of capital. It's brilliant. brilliant. It's, it's so true. And so I, I'm going to come, I, I'm going to invite you on uh, into our show and uh, I'm going to have you give us a masterclass on, on some of the, the, the pitfalls we need to avoid when we're putting on those trades. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, sounds good. And um, I, there's no way I'm not bringing you back at some point because I think we could talk for like three hours nonstop. I know. I know. We're going to have to do this on a summer Friday so we can both get some drinks. It'll be like noon in my time. <laughs> okay, cool. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. To learn more about Options Insight and our trading community, please visit us at www.options-insight.com or you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and also follow us on Twitter at options underscore insight. Until next time, thanks.